Well, let's turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, Jesus, of course, is in the upper room in Jerusalem the night before he was crucified. And I wonder how you would characterize Jesus' upper room discourse to this point. Jesus has offered words of rebuke. He harshly rebuked Judas, and he mildly rebuked Peter for refusing to allow him to wash his feet. He also rebuked Peter for his coming denial. And he rebuked Thomas and Philip for not understanding his true identity. Jesus has also offered words of comfort, particularly emphasizing the coming of the Holy Spirit. He would not leave his disciples orphaned in the world. He would comfort them. And Jesus also offered words of exhortation, particularly an exhortation to abide in him as the vine. So thus far, we have seen rebuke, comfort, and exhortation. Now, beginning with verse 18, Jesus will turn to words of warning. He will be crucified because he is hated by the world. If that's true, what can his disciples expect? Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. One can only wonder how those words must have struck the disciples. It's likely the disciples do not understand the full magnitude of Jesus' warning. In fact, it's quite possible the disciples greatly misunderstand him. And I say that for two reasons. First, the disciples did not comprehend the suffering that Jesus himself was about to endure. Perhaps a week earlier, Jesus had explained that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, that he would be mocked, that he would be shamefully treated and spit upon, that he would be flogged, and yet he would rise again the third day. 
But Luke tells us three times they understood none of these things. So if the disciples do not understand Jesus' own sufferings after he explained it to them three times, it's hard to imagine disciples really comprehending their own suffering. Secondly, both along the road to Jerusalem and even in the upper room, the disciples argued among themselves over who would be greatest in the kingdom. And that argument betrayed a severe misunderstanding of the opposition that they would receive from the world, the opposition toward the true kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom was not the sort of kingdom where they were going to suddenly find themselves occupying thrones when they arrived in Jerusalem, not at all. Their expectations had to be completely reoriented. Now, at this point, let's just cross-reference with Matthew chapter 20. And let's observe a somewhat humorous, albeit tragic, episode that occurred a short time earlier as Jesus is making his way up to Jerusalem to experience his suffering. In Matthew 20, 17 through 18, we have a record of a third instance of Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. And the news is grim. And Jesus says in verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now, that's where Luke tells us explicitly the disciples understood nothing that he just said. Matthew will make the same point, but in a rather different way. Matthew records a story concerning two disciples and their mother that betrays their true ignorance of Jesus' teaching. Look at verse 20. Then the mother the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, this story is humorous because it reminds us of our childhood antics. The sons of Zebedee were James and John. They lusted after positions of honor in Jesus' kingdom. But, of course, they are too embarrassed to ask for those positions themselves. So, like a child who doesn't want to ask permission of his parents and puts his brother or sister up to it, all right, in this case, they cajole their mother to come make the request. 
Now, Jesus immediately sees through the ruse, and that's why in verse 22 he addresses not the mother, but the two disciples. They, plural, then responded to Jesus. He's not talking to the mother at this point. He's talking to those disciples. The other disciples also saw right through the ruse, and that's why in verse 24 they were indignant with who? With the brothers, not with the mother. Now, this story is not so humorous after all. And that's because Jesus explains the terrible fate that awaits him in Jerusalem. The disciples are looking for positions of honor in the kingdom. And Jesus speaks of the cup of his own suffering. The contrast between them could not be more acute. Now, granted, Jesus had been constantly speaking of his kingdom. In fact, he spoke a whole lot more frequently about his kingdom than of his suffering. If he has made three references to death, he has made many, many, possibly hundreds of references to his kingdom at this point. Matthew told us he went everywhere preaching his kingdom. And in fact, in Matthew 19 and verse 28, Jesus did say that they, the disciples, would sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. So, you have to be a little bit sympathetic with the disciples. And it's true that some 2,000 years later, interpreters are still trying to figure out exactly what he meant by that prediction. Jesus had, in fact, made many promises to the disciples. But none of them seem to fit with this notion that he is going to be nailed to a cross as a failed revolutionary. Nevertheless, the disciples' reaction in this passage is rather tone deaf. Jesus, of course, though, understands their misunderstanding. What he wants to do is just upend their whole value system. It's not the people on the highest rung of the social ladder who just walk right into the kingdom, but actually people on the lowest rung. Back in Matthew 19, a rich young ruler had come to Jesus. That's the kind of person you would expect Jesus to welcome into the kingdom, right? That guy's got money and power. Yet Jesus turned that man away. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Well, that must have been a shock. Well, clearly the disciples didn't get the message back in chapter 19. They are still thinking in earthly categories. And they are coveting and they are maneuvering themselves, trying to attain those positions of honor, influence, and wealth in the kingdom. And they don't care who they shame in the process. They will even manipulate their own mother to secure positions for themselves. And they have no idea that Jesus' kingdom actually involves suffering. So, for a second time now, chapter 20, Jesus comes along and just upends their whole value system. First he said, you want to be great? Become a child. Now, Jesus essentially says, if you want to be great, then prepare yourself for suffering. When Jesus asked in verse 22, 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? He was speaking about suffering. This is the common metaphor throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament for suffering. Now, do the disciples understand? No. When Jesus the King goes to Jerusalem and he is elevated with an inscription over his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, at his right and left hands are crucifixion victims. Those aren't the positions of honor they were expecting. But in time, Jesus says, verse 23, you will drink my cup. You will suffer for me. Now, let's turn back at this point to John chapter 15, and let's let this scene in Matthew 20 just really inform our reading of John chapter 15. Verses 18 through 25 are a kind of commentary on what Jesus meant just a short time earlier, maybe a week or two earlier, when he referred to drinking his cup. In John 15, Jesus begins with a reminder. Here it is. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's the cup of suffering. That's the hatred. The hatred Jesus receives, his followers can expect to receive it too. So don't be surprised when it comes. Why should it be otherwise? They hated Christ. What Jesus is doing is he is eliminating the surprise factor the disciples would surely experience in coming weeks. If they thought that Jesus was going to a throne instead of a cross, surely the world's hatred would come for them as well. Now the word world, as John uses the term, does not refer to the creation Actually, it refers in this context to mankind's collective, active rebellion against God. There is, in fact, John tells us, a whole world system out there. And that whole system is in a perpetual state of rebellion against God. That's Psalm 2. Let's resist Jesus Christ. Now, we find ourselves very often wanting to believe the best about that world. But frankly, when you read Romans 1 through 3, we looked at Romans 1 through 3 partially last Wednesday, you get a very different picture. Maybe we should believe the worst. The world hates Jesus. Now, back in John 7 and verse 7, Jesus succinctly explained why that hatred is so great. Here's what he said. These are the words of Jesus. The world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. If you condemn evil, the world will hate you. So friends, do we have the courage to look out there at the world system and testify that it is in fact evil? Psalm 2, again, depicts the nations as raging against God. And it does not say, well, Republicans are good, Democrats are evil, or vice versa. What it says is the world out there 
rages against God. Now, remember, the immediate world of which Jesus speaks is actually not quite the world that you and I live in. The religious world of the first century, the first century Jews, is the world that Jesus was actually speaking of. That world centered on a temple. That world celebrated festivals and religious traditions. Jesus' world was full of religious leaders who read the Old Testament. Outwardly, that world looked just all right. Ostensibly, that world loves Yahweh's laws, his ceremonies, his feast. Ostensibly, that world was looking for the Christ to manifest himself to Israel. John 7 spoke of the law, Moses, circumcision, Sabbath, and the Christ. And Jesus lived in an extremely religious world, actually far more religious than our world. But Jesus had the courage to say, it is corrupt. Now the world in this context, again, is the Jewish religious world shaped by the Old Testament. But Jesus can say, that world actually hates me. He has come along to say, the deeds of that world are evil. So I just want to know, friends, is it possible that there is such a thing as a religious world shaped not just by the Old Testament, but by the New Testament as well, that is equally corrupt? Do you have a category for that in your mind? Is it possible you could have a world shaped by the ethos of the New Testament that is in fact corrupt? Paul warned against unbelievers who would come along and they would twist the Scripture, the New Testament. Sometimes your greatest hostility actually comes from other Christians so-called. And when that happens, Jesus says in verse 18, if the world hates you, that's your experience, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If it were merely up to the Romans, Jesus would not have been crucified. It was actually the experts in the Jewish Old Testament, the Sanhedrin, that insisted on the death of Jesus. And John's Gospel makes it very clear that every time that Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, the Jews came for him. In fact, they have already attempted to stone him three times. So don't be surprised if the world turns against you because that world hates Jesus. And that leads to verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, of that whole system, that system, that world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Would you notice the relationship between the last two clauses? I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That word therefore expresses a causal relationship. 
The world hates the people whom Jesus chooses. You know, oftentimes when Christians suffer, they are tempted to ask, well, does God hate me? In this instance, Jesus is saying precisely the opposite. The world hates God's children, those chosen by Jesus. And indeed, that hatred can and does lead to persecution, to opposition. And that's where Jesus is going. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Jesus is the master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The world afflicts us because it hates the fact that we are chosen by God. The world hates Jesus the master. So we should not be surprised that the world hates the master's servants. But would you observe how the parallel, par, parallel can't get the word out, parallelism, there we go, does offer us some hope. Look at the latter two phrases. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. In other words, what happens to Jesus happens to us. In many cases, people rejected Jesus. But some actually responded to him also. And the same will be true of us. And we came across a very interesting illustration of this back in John chapter 12 in the aftermath of Lazarus' resurrection. John wrote on that occasion, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Lazarus. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. They are seeking to kill him. So don't be surprised when they come for Lazarus also. Lazarus himself was persecuted, strange as that may sound. But then John adds, many of the Jews were in fact believing in Jesus because of the testimony of Lazarus. And that's precisely what we can expect as well. The world hates Jesus, but some will turn and embrace him. People will respond to Jesus' disciples then the way that they responded to Jesus, and that really should not surprise us. Now, I thought about completing the rest of the passage this morning, but I think actually it would do us a little bit of good to take a rather extended example from church history. I don't often do this, but I want to take some time to explore these principles in the life of an individual from church history. The cup of suffering and the promise of success is what Jesus speaks of here. And this is a truism for many, many people throughout church history. In fact, missions history is full of examples of people who experience the juxtaposition of responses in verse 20. 
Adoniram Judson was born on August 9, 1788. He was raised in a Christian home in Malden, Massachusetts. His father, Adoniram Sr., was a Congregationalist minister. Anne Hasseltine was born the following year in Bradford, Massachusetts. Judson attended the College of Rhode Island, which is now Brown University. He graduated valedictorian of his class. He was actually 19 years old. Adoniram soon abandoned his parents' faith, though, becoming a deist and a skeptic. This was due largely to the influence of a very close college friend named Jacob Eames. And Judson came to embrace many of the worldly philosophies of the French revolutionaries. However, two professors from the newly founded Andover Theological Seminary, after visiting with Judson's father, suggested that he, even as an unbeliever, be given a special dispensation to go off to seminary. Well, later on, while traveling, Judson took a room for a night in an inn, and it proved to be a miserable night, because in the room next door, he could hear the terrible groans of someone who was violently ill. The next morning, he inquired of the clerk about the man's welfare, and he was horrified to learn that the man had died. And Judson asked for the man's name, and the clerk responded, Jacob Eames. It was his friend. And that shock of that sovereign coincidence sent Judson right out of atheism or deism right back into Christianity. And he soon devoted himself to the idea of foreign missions, In 1810, Judson joined three other students to appeal to the Congregationalist General Association to consider foreign missions. At that time, it was relatively unheard of in America. Out of that petition, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions was established. This is America's first mission board. That same year, Judson met Anne Hasseltine. And to give you just a sense of how devoted Judson had become to foreign missions, I want to quote to you from a letter that Judson wrote to Mr. Hasseltine asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. Here's what he wrote. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing and mortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. So, dads, how would you respond? What is that, Norman? Burma. He's holding up a, he's holding up Burma for you. Okay. How would you respond? Well, Mr. Hasseltine consented. 
Adoniram and Anne were married February 5th, 1812. The next day, Adoniram was, ad- was ordained at Tabernacle Church in Salem with, along with his four friends. And you can still go there today and you can see the very bench on which he sat when he was ordained. They also have a stuffed chicken there that some missionary brought home from somewhere in China, I think. Anyway, the ordination service was preached by a man named Leonard Woods, who was actually a professor back at Andover. And Woods chose as his text Psalm 67, Thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all nations. And he emphasized in that sermon the Great Commission was binding upon Christians even to the end of the world. God values, he said, the souls of every race of people. Two weeks later, the Judson sailed aboard the caravan for India and then for Burma. On board ship, Judson engaged in a focused study on baptism. Three considerations actually led him to adopt a Baptist position. First of all, his work on the Greek New Testament. He was preparing to translate it. He wanted to read it and understand it. Secondly, he knew that when he arrived in India, he was going to have to explain his position to the Baptist missionary and linguist William Carey. And thirdly, he desired to disciple new converts and to gather churches, so how was he supposed to treat this issue of baptism? And on board ship, he adopted the Baptist position. Arriving in India, Adoniram and his wife were baptized by William Ward, a missionary associate of William Carey. Judson actually had left for India under the support of the Congregational American Board of Commission for Foreign Missions, but his baptism forced him to change mission boards. It actually led to the formation of America's second mission board, the American Baptist Missionary Union, which determined they, they would send Judson over to Myanmar or to Burma. In fact, it was his friend and traveling companion, Luther Rice, who became ill, who went back to America and relentlessly raised money to keep Judson on the field. After spending a year with English missionary William Carey, Judson then finally got to Burma on July 13, 1813. Anne miscarried their first child aboard ship. Judson was a brilliant linguist, and he mastered the exceedingly complex language of the Burmese people. But the Judsons were warned that the Buddhist Burmese were nearly impossible to convert. Four years passed before Judson even held a semi-public service. In that time, the Judsons lost a second child, Roger Williams Judson, at eight months of age. By 1817, Judson had completed his translation of the Gospel of Matthew. And he sat by the roadside crying out, Ho, everyone that thirsteth for knowledge. Actually, it was some six years before he saw and baptized his first convert, a man named Wong Na, a 35-year-old timber worker. That was the year 1819. By 1822, Judson had seen 18 converts, and it was no easy task. Officially, the emperor of Burma, finding out about this Christian religion that was beginning, 
decree that anyone who changes his native religion should be executed. Imagine that. It took 12 years to make 18 converts, and now they can all be executed. In 1824, war broke out between Burma and Britain. Judson was in prison for 20 months on the assumption that he was a foreign British spy, although he was from America. If you read his biography, you know that his treatment was brutal. Prison conditions were wretched. Other English-speaking prisoners had died. During this time, his wife Anne was left alone, the only known Western woman in Burma, and she was nursing a tiny baby. Adoniram eventually was released, but Anne soon became sick with a dreadful disease. In fact, both Judsons were constantly sick. Their immune systems never quite fit with the Burmese climate. Anne died on October 24, 1826. Their third child died six months later. But then the churches began to grow. In the meantime, Adoniram slipped into a deep state of depression, battling loneliness and pride, pride, self-sufficiency and heartbreak. Judson destroyed every letter of commendation that he had ever received. He actually went on to renounce an honorary doctorate that he had received from Brown University. He went out into the jungle and built a little hut called the Hermitage. And then he dug a grave. And he would sit by that grave day after day, and he would deliberately consider the stages of bodily decay. And he just hoped that he would just sort of drop off into that grave and die. But he was not alone. A Burmese convert and a deacon named Ko Dwa followed him into the jungle every single day and watched out for his safety. There were many tigers in the jungle. And Ko Dwa, that was his, that was his deacon role. Imagine that. Imagine that. Who's the deacon in charge of the tigers? We need to nominate somebody. <laughs> In the meantime, Jetson, by 1827, had begun laboring with George and Sarah Broadman to reach a tiny, a tiny tribal minority group, the Karens. These are the most primitive of the Burmese peoples. Jetson's first convert was a man named Ko Tab Wayu. He was an illiterate thief and a murderer. Jetson asked him, how many men have you killed? He said, I don't know, about 30. He was baptized and went back in the jungle preaching to his kinsmen. And that was the beginning of a Christian church that thrives today among the Karen people. Dutton also began taking long canoe rides up the Salween River into the tiger-infested jungles to evangelize more and more Karens. Today, it's estimated about 40% of the nearly 4 million Karens claim faith in Jesus Christ. The Karen Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the country. All the while, Judson just kept on translating the entire Bible. In 1834, after intense opposition, ill health, and imprisonment, Judson completed his translation of the Burmese Bible and a dictionary 
The Bible took some 24 years to complete. It was finally finished and published in 1835. In the meantime, actually that same year, 1835, Judson ended up marrying Sarah Boardman. Her husband, George, had earlier passed away. And they labored together for some 11 years. They had eight children together, three of whom died. By 1845, Sarah's health was so poor, they decided to take a voyage home. But Sarah never made it. She died on board ship and was buried on the island of St. Helena, September 1st, 1845. Judson then married for a third time, Emily Chubbuck had been commissioned to write Sarah's memoirs. And that's how Judson met her, and they were married on June 2nd, 1846, and they had a daughter together. Judson then returned to Burma for another four years, but soon he developed a very serious lung disease. The doctors prescribed for him a sea voyage, but on April 12th, 1850, he died at the age of 61 on board ship. And he was buried at sea in the Bay of Bengal. In total, Judson spent 37 years on the mission field with only a single trip back home to America. Imagine that. His initial goal, understand this, was to plant a single church of a hundred members before he died. But instead of 100 converts, Judson left behind 100 churches and some 8,000 converts. Today, Myanmar has the third largest number of Baptists in the world behind the United States and India. Judson's translation actually remains the most popular in Myanmar today. In the 1950s, Burma's Buddhist prime, Buddhist prime minister, a man named Unu, told the Burmese Christian Council a new translation is not necessary. Judson's captures the language and idiom of the Burmese perfectly and is very clear and understandable. Now, that was 50 years ago. Things may have changed since then. But this is a widely celebrated translation. Now, I tell you that whole story because it really does illustrate verse 20. Jesus says to us, remember the word that I said to you. Don't forget this. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute Adoniram Judson and all of Christ's servants. But if they keep my word, they will also keep yours. That was Judson's life. He was called to be a servant of the master, but that master was persecuted, and so Judson was persecuted. But some embraced Jesus' words, and some embraced the words of Judson. Jesus is simply telling us what we can expect when we follow him. But friends, don't be surprised when the world hates you for no reason whatsoever. Look at verse 25. I know this is a hard sermon, but this is, these are the words of Jesus. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. If that's true of Jesus, that might be true of you as well. Now, I mentioned on Wednesday night the testimony of a man named Hanamasad. 
Hanum Asad, and his testimony is public, it's on the web. He is a Baptist pastor from Gaza, and he relates that he has endured persecution from Islamic militants in Gaza. And he has endured persecution from Israeli Zionists in Gaza and the West Bank. He's experienced persecution from both sides because both sides represent the world. He is a very lonely voice, like Judson in hostile territory. And when he was asked what message he preaches in this hostile environment, as we're seeing in Gaza today, his answer is very simple. He says, what else can I preach but the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Our foremost weapon against the world, Massad says, in this heated environment is the love of Christ. That's our, that's our best weapon. Well, does that sound to you like he has actually read the upper room discourse where Jesus introduced the new commandment before going to Golgotha? We have just a moment here. I have been in communication with another pastor in that part of the world. I'm not going to give his name because I don't know what danger he might possibly be in. But he's in that same part of the world. And I asked him, how do you respond? And he said, we are instruments of love and mercy of our Lord. He said, we need to show people the way to Jesus in the midst of all this chaos. He writes, the propaganda on both sides has a political agenda. That doesn't surprise me. This is the world that we're talking about. So we have to be wise not to confuse facts with reality and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he writes this, the teaching of the Bible is clear. First, what to do with our enemies? Love them. Second, what did Jesus do to his enemies? He prayed for them on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Third, what do we do with 1 Corinthians 13? Does it apply to everyone or is it just to some? When it says, if you have all knowledge and I know all prophecy but have no love, I am nothing. What do you do with 1 Corinthians 13? You love even those who persecute you. Can we go to prayer, friends? And can we, as we prepare our hearts for communion, remember that the sufferings that Jesus Christ experienced are sufferings that believers experience in many parts of the world today. And can we uphold them in prayer as we prepare our own hearts for communion? Let me ask that four of our men come and we prepare the table for you.